New York ain't New York anymore. How I miss those old pals of mine. How did Airship 101, embodying the British Empire's global ambitions, die in a fireball, only to see its sensational story of human hubris turn to ashes in the pages of history? We'll take a ride in the airship of a Pulitzer Prize finalist next. Dooms a dirigible. The crew of the British R-101 gets set for a first and final flight, destination disaster. Among the doomed is British Air Minister Thompson Center. In Cardington, England, 1930, most of these men have a date with death. But in the elevator up the mooring mast, there's no hint of the Holocaust to come. Hello, history lovers, and welcome. I'm your host, Dean Carianis, and this is the History Author Show on iHeartRadio. And a special tip of the hat to everybody enjoying today's time travel adventure via our YouTube channel. You can find me at historyauthor.com or across social media platforms. Plus, you can read my columns in the New York Sun to get my analysis of current events through the lens of what I've learned from all these books on the shelves behind me. One of those columns is a review of today's book. It is titled, His Majesty's Airship, The Life and Tragic Death of the world's largest flying machine. At the controls of that dirigible, that rigid airship, as distinct from blimps, which are just balloons, is S.C. Gwynn. He's going to tell us about the rise and crash of this massive, massive dirigible. It was the dawn of the aviation age, and these things were in the air, and you would just be blown away if you saw it. S.C. Gwynn is here to bring this story back for all of us to enjoy and it includes even a star-crossed love affair of an ambitious British officer and a Romanian princess. S.C. Gwynn previously joined us to discuss his books, Hymns of the Republic, the story of the final years of the American Civil War, and The Perfect Pass, American Genius, and the Reinvention of Football. His 2010 book, Empire of the Summer Moon, Quanah Parker and the Rise and Fall of the Comanches, the most powerful Indian tribe in American history, was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. Find those books and those interviews in our archives at historyauthor.com or wherever you're listening now. You can also visit scgwin.com or follow our guest at scgwin on Twitter. Okay, now that we've arrived at the Aerodome, let's join SC Gwyn and climb aboard His Majesty's Airship. And here we are with S.C. Gwynn. He's joining us to chat about His Majesty's Airship, the life and tragic death of the world's largest flying machine. Welcome back to the History Author Show, sir. It's great to be back with you, Dean. Well, when I found out you were writing a book on dirigibles and then I had it sent to me by your publicity agency, I guess it was, that said it to me. I said, well, mm -hmm. I have to get you back on. I'm still fascinated with that period. I have a poster of the old... Palisades Amusement Park in New Jersey that overlooks Manhattan and they had dirigibles they would fly them over the city it was a it was just something that they did back then that sounds crazy now 15 year old boy he would just fly it around New Jersey New York go buzz Grant's tomb it was <laughs> it was something that so captured the imagination of the people back then and yet today we look back and we know that that wasn't to be so you dig up this man from history, Lord Christopher Birdwood Thompson, yeah. and he leads this, the Imperial Airship Scheme. So I'd like you to tell us about that. That's the early 20s. 
And it sounds like something out of HG Wells. So how do you come across that idea and what is that program? And did people take it as seriously as today? We would take it unseriously and think it sounded crazy. Oh, people took it really seriously. This is us. This is from the British point of view, serious on the level of like moonshot or something. I mean, they really thought this was going to change the world. So I have to back up just a little bit to, you know, in the post-World War One years, um, the British, um, who had had a very big empire to begin with, emerged from World War One with a really big empire. 25, you know, they're taking a lot of the old Ottoman Empire, a lot of the old German overseas holdings. They now have 25% of the earth is British one way or the other, dominions, territories, protectorates, colonies, whatever. The sort of problem is, though, is the Brit things aren't going that well, even though they do have this enormous reach. I mean, there's been the empire has been creaky for a long time. You know, we have the Boer War in South Africa, the Irish Rebellion. Uh, uh, you know, India is seething. You know, the biggest, the biggest single part of the of, of the British Empire revolts in Iraq. I mean, the, the and we know what's going to happen to the British Empire soon enough. But um, so th these gentlemen. Um, kind of imperialists of a latter day, I guess, kind of came up with this idea that they were going to use this technology of airship technology, giant airships. Um, and they were going to be basically driven by British technology. They were going to link the far-flung pieces of their empire together in kind of a new way to think about the empire. And so, you know, instead of it being, uh, you know, a month from Sydney to London, which is what it took, it would be 11 days. Instead of 12 days from Karachi, which was then in India, to London, four days. I mean, radically shortening the amount of time it would take to get around the empire, linking it all closer together. And they, they, they no longer had their military punch that they used to have. But this idea of, of the, the, the skies would be ruled by airships. Long range for, they were good for long-range travel, although they were thought to be. And the airships would be governed by British technology. And this was kind of going back, if you think of the 19th century, a lot of the great British dominance, you know, was the pounding piston. They were better at building engines than anybody else and better at building guns and ships and British, the total British dominance of the seas. And that was gone, it would never return, but now it's gonna be British dominance of the air in peacetime. And anyway, so so this this the imperial airship scheme, which this was, was launched. And the main driver of this was this fascinating guy named Christopher Birdwood Thompson, who was entirely a creature of empire, five generations of the Raj military family. He had himself fought in all the major theaters of empire in the early 20th century. And he became secretary of state for air, which is such a great title. I mean, what a wonderful title. It belongs in a Shakespeare play somewhere. Um, and it was he who drove this ultimately doomed mission to kind of populate the world with airships, which, by the way, in those years, we're talking interwar, right? So between the First and Second World War, you know, 1920s, um, it was still believed by a lot of people that the better bet for long range travel was going to be an airship. And by that, I mean a rigid airship, very large hydrogen filled. They just seemed, you know, for example, uh, you know, uh, an airplane going from London to India would take, you know, 12 days and 26 stops and bone rattling and oil spewing. I mean, it was not comfortable travel back then. So it was thought that these airship, airship could do it in two days, refueling once, 
uh, floating, even though they weren't fast, they, because they didn't have to refuel, they could just cruise along at 60 or 70 miles an hour and they could make these distances. So it was this whole vision of the world and a whole vision really of long range travel. And there was this kind of moment in history where the balance is teetering between the airship for long range travel and the airplane. And we, you know, Lindbergh notwithstanding, or actually Lindbergh is, is sort of the counter example. The fact that he crossed the Atlantic did not mean that everybody was going to do that. That was an act of unbelievable heroism, uh, you know, but it, it was, anyway, it was thought at this point that maybe it, the future belonged to airships. And that was what the hero of my book, that was his plan. He pushed this forward. The, the, the hero airship of my book, the R-101, was going to be the, the thing that flew to India and back and showed the world that this was going to be the future. It's going to be British, it's going to be airships, and so on. Long-winded answer. <laughs> well, wind is something we're certainly going to get to <laughs> because the uh, rule Britannia, Britannia is ruling the waves, and now why not? It just seems natural. Their manifest destiny is, I guess, when they look up in the sky. And you called him a hero, Lord Thompson, of your book. And I think that's a nice thing. And I think it's apt because it would be easy to look at him and say, well, he doesn't make it. We don't usually remember the people that that crash things, right? We usually tend to say, well, they screwed up and they're done. But it, there, there's just something romantic, even for us. I think people especially like history about an age where today we're confident in our technology, but we've seen disasters. We've seen things like the, the space shuttles explode. We know yep. that Apollo 13 happened. But back then they had that notion that there was really nothing that they that they couldn't do. It's it's an amazing. Is that what makes him a hero to you? Is that why you're comfortable, even though he fails in this journey, in looking at him as a hero? He's a hero because of one, he was a decent guy. He had this vaulting kind of global ambition. I mean, there was nothing dark about him. There was nothing. I mean, he really wanted to change the world, and he really wanted to do it in a very innocent and an earnest way. And he really was a, a talented person. He wasn't kind of a, you know, one of these upper class uh, Monty Python-esque twists type. He was not. He was he was better than that. And, uh, and, and I think, too, when you go back to, let's say, the early days of aviation, um, if you look at airships and airplanes, which are competing now in the early 1900s, we have Count von Zeppelin is flying a lot farther with a lot more people than, than the Wright brothers are. So we have, you know, there's, there's this early kind of competition going on. But also airships are crashing like crazy. Airplanes are crashing like crazy. There's this moment, you know, this, uh, in early technology, particularly technology that goes up and defies gravity, people die, there's crashes, and somehow the technology persists, you know, somehow there's, it's either you know, stupidity, naivete, craziness, I don't know, I wouldn't have gotten on these things, uh, but uh, there were people who would get on the uh, the, the doomed airship or the, I, I don't know, there, there was a period of just two years when there were 500 air crashes or something. I mean, it was, so technology persists, these things are tried out. There's also because of you know the World War One here. There are a lot of people coming out of that war with a lot higher tolerance for risk and death and everything else than we than I sitting in my little suburban. I mean, I'm very averse to that stuff. A lot of people who came out of the war were less so, and that was Thompson. So Lord Thompson is pushing forward 
a technology that is deeply flawed and he's going to do it to the to his own doom and that's part of this here but uh i, I see him in kind of a, along the lines of, of a tragic hero he, he um he made some mistakes he he listened to the wrong people and so forth but he ultimately tried to do to do something good and uh he was, uh, if you look at airships, airships had a 40-year life. That was all they had. I'm, and I'm talking about the big rigids, not the Goodyear blimp. Goodyear blimp isn't a rigid airship. Rigid airships have a steel and aluminum <laughs> skeleton, and they're filled with hydrogen airbags or helium airbags. But that's that's what they are. They had a 40-year life. They were basically flawed from the very beginning. And there were people that just kept driving this forward eventually, uh, you know, to, to the, the doom of many people and the end of airships. And meanwhile... You know, airplanes with the airship crowd called heavier than air, uh, they actually, they were flawed, but fundamentally with a sound idea behind them. You could wing loading, increase the amount of, you know, weight you could carry and the engines became better. And I mean, you know, eventually airplanes won out but because they were ultimately a better idea and airships were a really a very a bad idea i mean a really bad idea actually seen in retrospect and so some ways you can look at it just as this is how this is what happens to an early technology that that falls by the wayside if you will and um airplanes are an example of an of an aviation technology that that didn't that won you mentioned this is the interwar period and i looked at one list you had in his majesty's airship and it's the fate of germany's 125 zeppelins in the great war what we would today call world war one and the fact that there's a category for destroyed by fire in a shed that's the category <laughs> it it, it kind of gives you an idea that this is not the safest thing if that is its own category and there's other disaster categories and it, it seems it seems ridiculous and so it's easy to laugh at but this is this is how we progress our human understanding huh. and uh, these people they were real people just like us and they unfortunately backed the wrong sky horse so to speak and you write that the crash when when r101 goes down the fire is 3713 degrees is what you list in your book fahrenheit because 2000 yeah 2000 sounds so much so much cooler right you could easily in celsius survive that but it, it knocks over this guy is out there poaching rabbits 820 feet away it's such an explosion and to me when things like this i read about them in history i say how did anybody ever forget this story how did this how did this crash today was it was it like a modern airliner today i guess we're more familiar with their crashes but how does this just become forgotten? And how did that crash compare to something we might see today when we have the unfortunate spectacle of a 747 going down? I think the more apt analogy would be to the moonshot if it if it everyone had died or almost the majority of them had died. Um, because that was how this was seen in, in Great Britain. This was seen as a major kind of national event in uh, this attempt to fly R101 uh, from India, from England to India and back, uh, something that had never been done before by an airship. And so, so there was there was kind of that that aspect of it. I think uh, you know something like the Challenger explosion, or you know that w w would would be a more kind of I guess apt analogy. Um, um, but the, the question is, your, your, your basic question is why, 
is this uh, has this been forgotten? And there's there's some there are various reasons for this. One I think is that the seven years later, the a, a Nazi airship called the Hindenburg went down in Lakehurst, New Jersey, your home state, and it went up in a fireball, and it was filmed. It was actually it was both filmed, and it was also broadcast live by Associated Press that went out on the radio stations. Um, and in the day, the, the, two, the, the two media were separate. In other words, the film was silent. The, the guys who filmed it were silent and the, the people who broadcasted just broadcasted and there wasn't in the, the, the silent film of the 30 seconds or whatever it was of the Hindenburg, 800 feet long, going up in this gigantic hydrogen fireball. It played in movie theaters all over the world and everybody knew about the Hindenburg and you know about the Hindenburg and just about, and I think my daughter who's 30 knows about the Hindenburg. Everybody knows because this absolutely astounding kind of like reality TV, like you've never seen it before. And then some enterprising British producer in the sixties married the sound to the silent, which had never been done before. And now we've got, oh, the humanity guy paired with an 800 foot long hydrogen fireball. Now, so, so there was a sense that, well, that's, you know, that's what people know. People don't know anything else. I think the Hindenburg overwrote other things. The R101 was just as big a hydrogen fireball and it was more lethal and it's a much better story. And yet there was no photograph of it. If we go back, this is again to your list of German Zeppelins. And, and if you include the Zeppelins plus all the other airships that went up in hydrogen fireballs, you're in the 70 range. I can show you 70 of that falling from the skies above London, 18,000 feet. I mean, even much more spectacular than the Hindenburg. Hydrogen was just one of their flaws, but it was a big flaw and it caused these things to blow up. Um, so why did why did R101 kind of get overwritten by that? I think it I think it partly was the that airships, the explosions of it was one of the last four airships to blow up, the Hindenburg being the last one pretty much, and that ended the airship era. So in a sense, airplanes won. And by this point, you know, by the night, by the mid-30s, there were only a couple airships flying. There, there were thousands of airplanes that the commercial services from Australia to Europe to the United States. I mean, airplanes just kind of took over and and went by them. And I think that's part of the reason too. But um, but it's fun, I have to tell you, it is fun to write about a a story that no one knows about. It's that history has forgotten. Um, this yeah, wonderful amazing. government project government like moonshot to to dominate the skies send these this ship to india and back and yeah so it, it, it's very interesting as for where i got the story it was in a three volume history of the british empire called pax britannica by an author named jan morris fantastic history nobody reads it anymore so like one of the lessons of this if you're a historian and you want to get ideas that nobody else has read books that no one reads anymore. that'd be the lesson I love that, that you get that idea. And I, I love that moment. And I've heard other authors say it where you find an idea and you say, well, somebody must have told this story, but it's a great one. And then you start looking around and you think you, you allow yourself to feel that that excitement of, well, wait a minute, maybe no one has written about it in a while. But no, 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 you you, you have to really look because you can't believe it. And it's, it's kind of like the battle between the airplanes and this dirigible technology where you're battling the cynicism and the optimism. And then you finally get to the point where you could accept, yes, this can be my story to tell because it it just hasn't been told. So that that's a, a great moment. It's huge excitement. 
I'm telling you, and it happened on this story because I had read this this about this years ago, and I, I always thought, this is what a great book it would be. And I had other projects that I had to do, and I finally went back to it. And there was that moment, exactly the moment you say, so I, you know, do what all like really highly trained historians do. I Googled it, right, to see who had done it before, thinking, well, at least a dozen books on this. It just no, the field was was clear. I mean, somebody had written the only uh, significant book. It was forty years ago, and it was written by a writer who wasn't a professional writer. So, I mean, the, the field was wide open. And yeah, it is a great moment because there's so many other moments where I think I have aha, oh, that's a great idea, and then you <laughs> yeah. Google it, and then you realize that oh yeah, you, you, that's not an original idea, Sam. There's you know there have been nine books since two thousand on it, and in yeah. fact, the more we are in the world of the internet, the more what hap- what I notice happens is there will be an idea. And I will say, oh, that'd be a good idea. So I will Google it or look look it up on Amazon or how whatever do and uh, And there'll be hardly anything done in the 20th century, maybe a little bit here and a little bit there, but starting in 2000, oh, it's like eight books. That's because starting in 2000, every kind of schlump author in the world sitting at wherever he, she is, can just scan the world for everything. It's all at your fingertips. Back in the old days, you would have to, you know, you would have to get on a bus from New Jersey and go into the, York, right? into the New York public and yeah. take out the periodical index. And say, now it's like, bam, bam, bam. Yeah. So everybody can see everything. And ideas are very precious. And if you have one that everybody else doesn't have, assuming it can, you know, there's enough material on it. It's a big deal these days. Um, anyway, I do have that here. It's, it's harder and harder to get, though. I may never have yeah. one again. <laughs> yeah, you'd have to go back. And I still like looking at newspapers.com, and I look in the archives all the time to find old things and old stories. And you're right. There's a little bit of jealousy. It's it's kind of like uh, working in news and working in politics. I feel like I'll, I'll talk with friends and wherever they are on the spectrum of covering it, wherever their jobs, we say, wasn't it nice the old days in the presidential campaign? Nobody paid attention to these this junk in Congress or in the White House until it was about the time for the Iowa caucus. Then people would pay attention. <laughs> now it's 24-7. Now everyone can go and find the library. They don't, they don't have to know that sweet spot or they don't have to fight the dizziness of spinning through the microfiche or anything like that. That's really, that's really makes this book his Majesty's airship, all the more special. And you mentioned uh, the moonshot. So I wanted to bring up an example that I thought of, which was Apollo 1. Uh, Apollo 1, those three astronauts die there on the pad, but the program persists. Apollo 11 ultimately reaches the moon. And so I thought in comparison to this, the story in His Majesty's airship, R101, is there something that you learn or that you can tell people or if you were advising somebody the government today has a million things that they're doing right studying new technologies is there a a way you could tell from this story or something you learned that tells us when we should persevere over adversity and when we should take the advice of wc fields who said at first you don't succeed try try again then give up there's no sense being a damn fool about it. <laughs> so do you, do you, oh, do you have an idea? What a great quote. That's a perfect quote here. Um, oh, thank it's you. interesting. The great, in some ways, you know, it's a 40-year human, a 40-year chapter in human folly is the airships because it was. They kept trying and kept trying. And and uh and it, you know, it it 
it never worked very well. And it, and it, there was always sort of a caveat. I mean, yes, you could fly airships, but only in fair weather, because if you, if you have six acres of surface area as R101 does, and you hit a 50 mile an hour wind. I mean, if you've ever been in like a sunfish sailboat and seen what a 20 mile an hour wind does to your sail, imagine six acres now. I mean, these things were, were very, very difficult to fly, you know, very, very, very difficult to navigate. And, uh, uh, you know, it was, it was a, you know, it was a technology that that persisted. But what I would say is that the thing that drove it more than anything else, the, the thing that drove both the German, Germans invented these things. Germans flew them as bombers in World War One. They were the first long range bombers, the first weapons of mass terror. German Zeppelins bombing seven cities in Europe, mostly um, England. But the German experience was was very flawed and the zeppelins kept crashing and and when once the british figured out that you could shoot incendiary bullets at them it was this very satisfying video game like experience when you hit one with 2.5 million cubic feet of hydrogen in it what that would do it looked just like the hindenburg except it was over england and what drove them though all the way from the very beginning from count von zeppelin's first zeppelins was nationalism and national pride there was something in these things they're huge they were the first Zeppelins were 450 feet long. The last ones were 800 feet long. There was just something. I mean, you know, when R101 would go over London, it would blot out the sun. Thousands would come out to see this thing. Kind of, it was this, and there was a lot of national pride tied up in. So we had the German experience. The Germans after World War One, the Treaty of Versailles, they're forbidden from doing these things anymore. Even, you know, basically forbidden. The British then jump in and go, hey. This is great. We're going to perfect these giant German airships and we're going to rule the world with them. And this enormous kind of upwelling of national spirit and national pride, national hubris, they then fall into this trap, as do the Americans. The Americans get into it in a less, perhaps less ambitious way. But what happens is, you know, what drives R101 and Chris Lord Thompson drives them all to their doom is, I guess, hubris it's national pride it's nationalism on a basis it's this idea that we are going to outdo whoever else was doing it and we are going to in the british case we're just going to dominate the world with this technology and i think the biggest mistake of all was to was to continue to let that rule and i'll give you just one example of how nationalism trumped everything else so in 1908 count von zeppelin who invented the large rigid airship so he's got his his uh his like his prototype, his fourth prototype, the first three have not done all that well, but the first couple crashed. And now he's got this thing and he's he's flown it for, you know, 12 hours and he's about, which is like no, the Wright brothers were at 38 minutes at that point. And uh, with one person like Orville on it and the, the count had done it, you know, with 12 people on it in, in 12 hours. And he had flying this thing on a 20, it was kind of the a, a 24 hour turn. He's going to, I guess fly 12 hours, turn around and fly back to where he started from. And if he if he did this, he was going to get these massive government contracts. So in the middle of that flight, the airship does what airships often do is one, it had engine problems. So he landed in this little town called Echterdingen in Germany. And this big wind came up and just and airships and wind did not mix on the ground. So it's just basically beat the crap out of this airship and hauled it over the landscape for about a mile, at which point a spark hit the air hydrogen and the whole thing blew up. And the Count is sitting there watching his prized baby blow up and burn. 
and figuring that it's all over for him. And there's thousands of German people in this field start singing the Deutschlandia, the Deutschland über alles, right? They start singing this. This just because they they're even though it had crashed, hadn't he flown further than anyone else? Yes, he had. Wasn't it German technology that no one else had? Yes, it was. And there was this kind of upwelling of national spirit and singing. And within six months, I think, he got $30 million in the mail from ordinary Germans um, and, and launched his company, launched the Zeppelin company, moved forward. But it was, it was entirely... It was it was the German national spirit that saved him, and so that the origin really of the Zeppelin era and the airship era was a gigantic crash in a fireball. That's what started it. Should have ended it. Started it because <laughs> the German national pride, and also we were kind of tipping toward war, not immediately, but eventually, they were seen as weapons that would help uh, you know fight the French and the, and the English. But anyway, that I think that there's so much of that involved and you know if you go back in any like the space program it was it was driven by practicality certainly but driven by nationalism i mean who was going to get there first right it's going to be the, the ruskies <laughs> or was it going to be us so yeah you, you said a couple of things there that that jumped out of me one was you said uh von zeppelin's baby and it made me think of that great picture here in his Majesty's airship, where you have, they called it the baby killer, right? The Zeppelin going overhead yeah. and, and they wanted to shoot it down. And the other was, you talked about it floating overhead and how majestic. And then I thought of how they put the speakers underneath so people on the ground could hear the music that they were playing inside. It was, it, you just think of what it was like. Today we have planes flying over the head all the time. People are flying, people go high in buildings. I, I don't think we could put ourselves in the shoes of these people, especially raised on those drawings from the Victorian era of H.G. Wells stories where they always, in any picture they had imagining the future, the air was always full of Zeppelins. It was going to happen. They they yeah. wanted to almost will it into existence, didn't they? And this, this R-101, you write in His Majesty's airship, it, it can fly and it looked good doing it. So as it's easy, so I guess, it is, it is to condescend. It's, it's great. Yeah. And you had German engineers calling it one man, the safest yeah. conveyance on on land or sea. So they had a lot of love for these things. It was understandable in the context of the times. And there's also something that I should point out here because, you know, I, I, I sometimes sound like, you know, they, they were never anything but a failure. They weren't, they had their moments of success. And these moments were always interpreted as being, see, well, that's this, this is why these things are the future. And one of the great moments you and I were talking about earlier. So 1919, this is eight years before Lindbergh, Eight years, yes, eight, uh, 1927, eight years before Lindbergh, um, a British airship that was given to, there it is, I, our kind of see it. I don't want to cover your book, but that's you it. Know? <laughs> it was a British airship yeah, was, yeah. that was... Uh, see the track it took, everybody? There you go. At the end of the war, the, the Germans, there was this great technological sort of combat between you know, Zeppelins and German and, and British fighter planes. And the British fighter planes at some point figure out by shooting incendiary or phosphorus bullets at these things, they could blow them up. And so the Zeppelins had to go higher and higher and higher. And the British technology, you know, was allowing the British fighter planes to go higher and higher. And they went to 10,000, 12,000, 16, 18,000, 20,000 feet. Eventually the, the, the biggest of the height climbers, the German, went to 26,000 feet, which can you imagine being unprotected at 26,000 feet? Everything freezes, including you. 
I'm digressing into the war. Okay, back to R34. So after the war, the, the British get, uh, you know, have basically uh, modeled this airship on a German height climber. And the meaning that its main thing was to go higher than, um, than the fighter planes could go. Uh, this was R-34. And they, there was really nothing, you know, they didn't really know what to do with this thing at the end of the war because the war was over. And, and they thought, hey, why don't we take this thing and fly it across the Atlantic, which was completely insane. It wasn't ever designed for that. It was designed to bomb London from 20,000 feet. And so they put this, there's this great guy, uh, George Herbert Scott, um, who's this just seat of the pants, dashing, swashbuckling captain. And he flies this R-34 and the lucky first- breeze, right? That was lucky, breeze, lucky, lucky breeze, lucky breeze, what a great. <laughs> uh, press on regardless, Scott, those were his names. And he flies this thing across the Atlantic. He goes uh, east to west, which is the hard way. Remember, Lindbergh didn't go that way. Lindbergh went the easy way, west to east. He did the first east-west crossing. He takes to New York, gets to New York, and he turns her and it's all these near misses. I mean, all near accidents. I mean, the thing should have gone down five times at least. Gets there, was, you know, tr tremendous celebration, turns around and sails it back. The first double crossing, the first east-west crossing, eight years before Lindbergh, an act of unbelievable heroism. Uh, you know, no one had ever done this before. And, and, uh, and you know, so so why you might ask, well, R101, which crashed 11 years later, lost to history. Why is Herbert Scott one of the great heroes of early aviation? Why is he lost to history? Because he is. Um, people may even re probably remember Alcock and Brown even before him had the the first official Atlantic crossing. Anyway, R34 was an enormous success. It was like, look at what you can do with these things. You can fly them a thousand miles round trip or whatever the thing was. I mean, they, you could you could do this. It could be done. See, there it is. Airships will do this. And, uh, and again, airplanes weren't even close to doing anything like that, flying continuously across the ocean. Alcock and Brown didn't, flew a much shorter route over the sea. So, you know, there, there were moments like this uh, where you could point to and say, well, it really is a good idea. It really has potential to be the long range air travel solution for the world. You're enjoying my conversation with S.C. Gwynn. He's the author of His Majesty's Airship, the life and tragic death of the world's largest flying machine. You can visit him at scgwynn.com or scgwynn on Twitter. Publishers Weekly writes of the book, Gwyn delivers a fascinating account of the bad decisions, distractions, naivete, and sheer incompetence behind the crash of the massive British airship R101 in a field outside Belvay, France in October 1930. Meticulously researched and vibrantly written, this is an immersive and enlightening account of how hubris and impatience can lead to disaster. Well, there you go. A bunch of negative qualifiers there for our boys, <laughs> our heroes. <laughs> but but praise for your book, which is the important thing. Yeah. yeah, but the people that you're writing about, I wonder how did you avoid that trap? Because that's that's all very true. You want to be an honest historian. But how did you avoid laying out this story so that people didn't lose faith in the people we were reading about, the real human beings. It didn't become the idiot in the attic. They call it in fiction, right? When you hear a disembodied voice in the haunted house, say, get right. out, just get out. Otherwise we lose sympathy for you, right? Just leave the right. house. So uh, how did you avoid that? How did you avoid well, that it, trap? 
I always try to, in my books, to humanize everything. So every narrative in any of my books is hung off human being. And there's no, to me, there's no other way to do it. So if you're, if we're looking at George uh, Herbert Scott, I mean, Herbert Scott was this brilliant, ultimately tragic figure. He did some of the most um, astounding flying that it ever or will ever be seen in, in history. And he is tragic because he 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 became an alcoholic and a very bad one. And he was in, actually entrusted with the go, no-go call on R101 when a point when he was very drunk. So we have a, I mean, to me, there's that's that this is a story that would tug at my heartstrings. It's a hero who has kind of fallen. And I think that there's something very human and very interesting about that. Um, and he's not, I mean, he's not he makes bad decisions, but um, a person who, you know, did a double crossing of the Atlantic eight years before Lindbergh is also a hero and is also a hero on a level that most of us could never even possibly dream of being. So there are people like this and, and Thompson himself, again, a, a, a basically d decent guy with a, with, a, with, a, with a great career and a really interesting Romanian girlfriend that humanizes him, this, this, um, he, uh, he he's sort of a military lifer and he, when he was in Bucharest during World War One, he meets this Marta Babesco, who's this absolute piece of work. She's a, she's a fairy tale princess. She's a immensely wealthy Romanian princess. She has two huge palaces. She is she is a writer and a, and a good one. She's the toast of literary Paris in 1908. Marcel Proust writes her poems. This is so this is Thompson's girlfriend as we go forward. And what he's doing is trying to impress her. Um, in various ways. And so you can see that part of what part of what Thompson is doing is kind of trying to shoot the moon with technology, shoot the moon with kind of nationalism. He's about to be named Viceroy of India and India is all wound up with this. We have vaulting ambition. We have a girlfriend that he's doing it for in part. And I don't know. I mean, it's these things to me humanize a, a story. I also think in this particular story, and we have lots of, I won't go into the, the other characters. We have lots of other interesting characters, um, more or less flawed. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I, in a lot of ways, to me, you could look at it in the large, larger picture as, this is a really great tale of the early days of aviation. And it, it, even though it's tragic and it's, it's doomed, it, I think the human side really illuminates the um, human side illuminates the era, the era of, you know, airships battling with airplanes for dominance. Who's going to lead along? I mean, it, there's a certain, uh, I mean, I think amount of humanization of any story that to me makes me want to read it. So anyway, that's, that's my best answer. Well, there, I remember once David McCullough was asked, I think I was at the 92nd Street Y for the event for John Adams. And he said, somebody asked him a question about, well, didn't they know back then X, Y, Z? And he said, well, the people back then didn't know they were living back then. It was just like, <laughs> we don't know where somebody's back then right now. And people are saying, why don't we know? Why didn't they know that? Didn't they know what was going on? And we might speculate. We don't know what that could possibly be. Uh, the one thing there you mentioned about Lord Thompson's romance, and I found something here in His Majesty's Airship is a an opportunity to explain just why there's so much romance around him, I guess, and what it tells us about him as a person, a humanizing moment. And that's they find a woman's shoe in the wreckage and uh, because yeah. that and they wonder who it was. So what what does fighting that what does, I guess a few generations now, a century almost of speculation about that shoe tell us about his relationship about or his relationship with that Romanian princess and something about us, about how we, we love to find a love story and how there's always a woman, as I've heard you say before. Always a woman. Yes, I am. 
Always women. So so uh, when R101 goes down, um, it, it, about 90 miles north of Paris in October of 1930, it goes down in a in a hydrogen fire, which had become very familiar at this point to anybody who knew airships, but that the world, because the Hindenburg wasn't hadn't been seen yet, no, nobody really knew what it looked like. But after the crash, it was it, hydrogen burns, as you pointed out earlier, very hot, and it and it it just carbonizes everything so fast that even human beings frozen like this forever, you know, like trying to stop it from a really gruesome way to go. And and this bothered everybody very deeply. There were a lot of casualties. And and the six survivors were in the engine nacelles that hung below the uh, that hung below the airship. Anyways, gruesome, gruesome deaths um, of Lord Thompson and Herbert Scott and and the crew and every everybody else. And there's a smoking lounge too. That's oh, there's a, there's <laughs> it seems crazy. <laughs> right, there's the smoking lounge, which is asbestos lined, which is just below the 5.5 million cubic feet of, of, of hydrogen, uh, <laughs> which is which is pretty interesting. But yeah, so, so after the crash, they found a lady's shoe. And the first speculation was that, um, because no one, no one was recognizable. The only way they could find anybody was by you know, jewelry or something, uh, and some dental work. But they thought, okay, there's a woman on board. No, nobody knew there wasn't supposed to be a woman on board. And then there was speculation that it was that Thompson had brought his girlfriend Martha Babesco on board with him, and uh, that wasn't true. Although it probably was, for all that we know, her shoe that he had brought he, along with. He had brought a, a little rug with him too for sentimental reasons because he was in love with her, and they they somehow saw their their future together. Um, but yeah, this was a big. A big moment. Uh, they they did they discovered it somewhere. They figured out that there was no woman on board. The R101's crash was one of the first mass media events in, in world history. Um, you know, radio hadn't really gotten going until the early 20s, and you know, newspapers. I mean, this thing was just glo a global event. It was all over the place, and so you know, you can imagine um, what the press does with something like that. So it became a it became a, a very big event. And the whole event, you know, the, the whole the whole thing was, you know, when you looked at what the, the British reaction to the crash was, they didn't see nothing like that since the Titanic. Um, two overflowing services at St. Paul's and Westminster. Uh, you know, there was something like half a million people in the streets in Whitehall as the funeral uh, cortege passed by. Um, it was just this national outpouring of grief, and which is interesting because you know when you have you had like forty eight dead, well there were like something like seven hundred fifty thousand British Empire subjects dead in World War One, but this again there was something big about it, about the ambition. It was the, it was a moonshot like ambition, and it had failed, and everyone had died, or almost everyone had died, and so everything attached to it, the, the romance, the uh, it just got blown bigger and bigger just keeps it all going. And to me, something about that asbestos, <laughs> just the fact that they had a smoking lounge, but also the asbestos saves Harry Leach's life. Yeah. One man that you cite. The guy, the, had, the guy in there smoking, is he, he, he <laughs> survives because he's smoking. That's a lesson to all you smokers out there. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it just makes you think that, well, first of all, the just the guts. You can't help but admire what, are the, what is the saying there for the song is, men and their flying machines, right? Uh, what's the first word there that I'm forgetting? But it, they just they just captured the imagination. The fact you would sit next to these bladders full 
the rigid airship, as you know, but for listeners and viewers, it's not just all full of of one big ball of hydrogen in there, one big pocket. It's individual pockets. They're making them out of cow intestines, the work that cow goes intestines. into this. And the yeah. idea that you would sit next to that with what? Uh, an inch? How thick could it possibly have been? Very of thin because everything had to be light. Yes. Right. Uh, and, and by the way, say, those, those gas bags, the gas bag right above there was of held 550,000 cubic feet of hydrogen. It was 10 stories high, that gas bag. Imagine a very large cheese wheel made out of cattle intestines filled with hydrogen and that you're it's right above, well, your sleeping quarters and also right above of the smoking quarters. And you decide I'm gonna light my pipe. <laughs> yeah. And it, which isn't what caught it isn't what caused right, it. Of course the yeah. they were gonna do. They were gonna they were gonna make air travel so luxurious that one of the things they realized, because everybody smoked back then, that if you were on a multi-hour or multi-day voyage, it was real hardship for a lot of people. And so they figured this out and they put the asbestos around this little box in there. And and right, the, the, one of the survivors was in there smoking at the time that the thing goes down and he survives because he's in the asbestos smoking lounge. So in that sense, it worked. Kidding. Yeah, um, it worked for him anyway. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. If he, I wonder if he quit. <laughs> Imagine that. I'm sure he had, he had a spouse or family members or somebody trying to get him to quit and he could say nope this saved my life and just fire up another one at that rate what a it's incredible stories like that here at his majesty's airship and i wanted to bring up something because of that asbestos and because of the design we talked about and it's once again very easy to condescend to the past and say this is so primitive but we could do better there was a headline of the sort we see periodically in august of 2020 it read these new luxury blimps hope to become the super yachts of the skies. Of course, it's a dirigible. It's not actually a blimp, but they, we'll hear them about both, about rigid airships and sometimes about blimps. And I wanted to ask you, having written His Majesty's Airship, when we see these headlines, do you think that the idea can ever work? Or is this just the same hubris, only with better technology? Now we're going to hashtag out our hubris. And if anybody does ever put an airship again, it's just too doomed overall the idea. It's a good it's a good question. Um, you know, the rigid airships, which is what we're talking about here, that the only way that you could lift a lot in an airship and really lift a lot like 100 people or, you know, 160 tons or 200 tons, whatever. The only way you could ever do that is if you had a steel structure with all these hydrogen bags and or helium in there. But I mean, that, that's that's really the only way you could do that. Um, the those things. The last one flew in 1939, and they will they will never fly again. I'm not certainly not the hydrogen airships, and I don't think they're just too big. They're too unwieldy. They're too easily blown around by wind and beaten to death on the ground. And there's all sorts of problems with them. But so now let's think about the Goodyear blimp or the Fuji blimp, because everybody knows there's big airships flying out there. We see them all the time, right? So what's the big deal, right? Well, first of all, they're not rigid airships. They have a rigid keel on the bottom, but they're just a, a, an envelope filled with helium gas. Um, they only fly in fair weather. They don't do well in wind. Uh, you would not, uh, you would just not put one up in in a, in a windstorm or anything. They they just don't do well in that. Now, there's some of these new airships, and I'm not the world's expert at all on these things. There's one that I just love called the Airlander. And it's just, you can see it has all these aerodynamic surfaces, which make it less, you know, it's, it's, it's not a rigid airship, it's a blimp. 
but it's and I can't remember how long it is, but it's not nowhere near the length of of the R one hundred ones and the Hindenburgs of the world. But it, it looks great. It'll take off like an airplane. Can do that. It can, you know. And one of the, I don't know if it's that one or this other one we were talking about. One of the ideas is that you know, let's say, let's say you had an extra half a million dollars, and you would like to go to the North Pole. Well, they would just take you to the North Pole and then just put you there. Sounds great to me. Um, <laughs> But I don't see, you know, and this helium, this is helium all the way. This isn't hydrogen. Uh, this is helium. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, I don't see any reason why you couldn't do that. I wouldn't, I wouldn't get on one in, in bad weather. That's, um, um, but, but I think, you know, they're talking about things like resupply of first aid or things like that, that they can, you know, I mean, they, they float and they can hover and they don't, you know, they don't go that fast. And, uh, and these things can be used for tourism and can be used for some philanthropy and, and things like that. And as I say, I'm not a, I'm not a, an expert at all in the modern airships, although I'm fascinated whenever I see the stories about them. Um, we'll see a few here and there. I, I don't see why we wouldn't. I mean, you can fly them under cer cer certain circumstances, certainly. And you pointed out here in His Majesty's Airship that it wasn't just the hydrogen that was the problem. And I, I wanted to mention to everybody at home that the U.S. had that monopoly on helium. We, we embargo it from the Germans. One reason they used the hydrogen, but it's also easy to make. Helium is only available at this point. They can only find it in uh, Oklahoma and in Byron's, I guess, yeah, North yeah, Texas and things like that, right? And uh, But the Akron is a, the U.S. Navy rigid airship you mentioned before. That goes off, or goes down off the coast of New Jersey. They can't land. And that, that's the tough no. part that you point out here. If they do have a problem, they just can't land in there. At the mercy, you describe it going across the English Channel, I guess it is, or away from London. At one point in the book, it was really vivid about it's going sideways. Because in your head, and if you played, even they're, they're in video games, you see them as in, in some of those sci-fi movies, they just look like they go where they want. But they're very much at the mercy of, uh, I don't even know if there's a an ocean going ship that is as much at the at the mercy it's almost like throwing that bottle in the water except you fill the bottle with gasoline and you're you're hoping that it doesn't catch fire even and, and there's no water i don't know it's not a great metaphor but well it's so so the americans <laughs> thought that the americans thought that they had an airship called the roma which they'd gotten from italy actually and it had hydrogen in it and it went up in a fireball in 1921 i think or 22 and they decided at that point they were the americans had helium nobody else did you know the hindenburg the Germans really wanted helium for that ship, and the Americans wouldn't give it to them for strategic reasons. The Hindenburg would never have, you know, done what it had done. But Americans went so to helium, and they, they, um, they had, let's see, three major crashes of helium airships. We, you know, the Shenandoah in 1925, and then the Akron, I think, in 1933, and then the. The Macon a year later, or two years later, but they were, if we if we look at uh, to your your example, the Akron. So this is a, a giant American helium filled airship. It is it is uh, over the Atlantic, uh, over the New Jersey coast, off the New Jersey coast. When these thunderstorms move in, illustrating your point, which is that an airship cannot go down in a storm. If it does, it will get beaten to pieces on the ground by the wind. So unlike uh, you know a ship, which theoretically anyway can go into a safe port, right, or a an airplane, which theoretically could land on somewhere in an airport or on a road somewhere, these things cannot go down. So we have the Akron up there, a big eight hundred foot airship filled with helium. 
with all the kind of the state of the art technology. Uh, it was actually combined Zeppelin company plus Goodyear technology, very high tech. And this thing got surrounded by thunderstorms and for a period of hours just was fleeing to the west, to the north, to the east, trying to figure out how to escape the thunderstorms. And, and these things were not only vulnerable to wind, which they were, um, but they were hugely vulnerable to the kinds of up and down drafts that you get in a, in a thunderstorm. And not so much in Europe, but in, in the United States. And so suddenly this thing was on like Mr. Toad's wild ride and he just straight up thousands of feet and then straight down again and flee again, you know, flee to the west because there was thunder to the east and then flee to the east back because there was thunder to the west. And it fled and it fled and eventually a, a downdraft just put it down. I think it was March in the, in the Atlantic Ocean off New Jersey and 73 of 76 died. And so that was a, and then its sister ship two years later went down off the coast of California. So these were helium airships that were supposed to fix that nasty problem of everything blowing up all the time. But what they illustrated was that airships were flawed in many, many ways. Hydrogen, hydrogen was just one of them. I wanted to mention something about that nationalism that I, I've looked up, I read before about the uh, suing of Led Zeppelin by the granddaughter of the Baron von Zeppelin for using that name. And I, I think she tried to sue them out of playing in, I think it was the Netherlands, Netherlands, uh, might've been Denmark, one, one or the other. And they, they met with her and, and I think they charmed her for a while and then she got mad at them again. But that that's kind of a, it, it's a fun little story. Did, did but she, the, do you remember, did she win? I don't, I can't remember what I heard. I've heard of the suit, but I never heard what happened to it. I would have looked it up if I intended to ask. I think that she did win and they couldn't play there, but they played with another name. I think that was what they did. They they did have the concert, but they didn't use that name. I think I will have to look that up. But that was it, funny. It was... I was like the uh, I was like the uh, the origin, as I remember it, is uh, this musical group, the Yardbirds, is breaking up, and uh, they have these well guitarists Jeff Beck and Jimmy Page, and Beck has left too, and. Page is trying to reconfigure the Yardbirds, and he's got his uh, he's got some musicians he's trying to bring in to create this new group, which is called the New Yardbirds. And uh, so, at one point, they're sitting around with the the guys, which are we're all famous English musicians, and he says he says something like, "Well, I'm going to get this new band together, and we're gonna we're gonna go out on the road, and it's going to be great." And 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 I think it was Keith Moon, the Who's drummer, said. Yeah, that'll go over like a Led Zeppelin. And that was it. <laughs> and of course, you had to sp have to spell it L-E-D because otherwise people would think the name of your band was Lead Zeppelin. Yeah, yeah, they would think, especially in Britain, it might not have been so good. It sounds like the tip of the spear coming to, to bomb them. But uh, yeah, and uh, well, I, it kind of brings me, this is going to be, I'm really going to stretch. I'll probably pull a muscle for this, for this transition. But speaking of the Yardbirds, course there's a season for everything turn 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 one of their songs and so the season of the air the airplane comes i was gonna say airplane because that's how they spelled it back then rudyard, Kip, rudyard kipling is a guy that's true rudyard kipling is somebody who is so synonymous with that victorian era and spirit that you talked about and he says i've always fancied the dirigible against the airplane for overhead haulage in the years to come there was that belief in it. I mentioned that to you before. And you said the explosions aren't what ended this program. Was there a moment or was it just gradual that made people realize there's no, there's nothing to be found. There's no reason to keep sinking money into airships. 
Was there one moment like a fiery explosion or did well, they just kind of slowly deflate? The, the two, after, after Germany had been basically forbidden from building these things, um, they weren't entirely, they, they managed to fly a couple of them uh, later on. But if, you know, if you look at the 20s, the, the most active programs were you know, the Americans and the British, the British by far. So the R-101 ended, period, the British air, that was it. The, the, R, the explosion of R-101 ended the British, you know, ambition and, the, and their entire airship program was scrapped and shelved. Um, it took the Americans, the, those crashes of the helium airships a couple of years later, that ended all the American airship program. And then, and then somehow now the Germans have gotten permission to fly passenger routes and they're the last ones standing. And they continue to believe that this is going to work and, you know, and uh, times are changing. You know, the Hindenburg has swastika on its tail and um, and the Hindenburg goes down and you think, boy, boy, then that's got to be the end of it. Right. The Hindenburg blowing up. No, actually, the Germans, there's a there's a there's another airship that they've got that they're using now to spy on the, on Britain and other places. But um, pretty much, you know, that persevering through all of the disasters with all this optimism that no we can fix this and may, we can make it better it's like it's like the titanic we can make it unsinkable we can make this ship as lord thompson said safe as a house except for the millionth chance we can really do this this persists and persists but r101 ended it forever for the british ended that that great scheme and uh and once that had happened i think you know there was you know, as we were moving toward World War II, there was going to be no, there was really probably never going to be a role for them in World War II, except possibly scout, you know, scouting over the Pacific Ocean, although which is what the Americans wanted them for. But that was kind of the end of them. Um, it was a lot of optimism, though, as you, as you point out, that just drove all optimism, nationalism, this never say die kind of, you know, we can do it attitude. They had seen so many amazing things already happen that from their point of view, you could see why, why not this? Why not dirigibles? It's, I guess, uh, so easy for us to look back on that now and say, didn't they know that it was doomed? But it's one reason we read a great book here, like His Majesty's Airship. That's why I certainly am recommending it to everybody. And uh, I would like to give you the last word on it. Unlike those dune passengers of R101, we're, we're coming in for a docking, no casualties, no lightning strike, no, no, no cigar being carelessly thrown aside. As a lover of history, if people can hear that in your voice right now, you're captivated by this story enough to persevere through COVID, by the way, to write yes. this book. <laughs> Why should readers pick up a copy of His Majesty's Airship? And as the song goes, come take a ride on your airship. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll frame it in terms of the one airship crash that everybody knows, which is the Hindenburg in 1937. Um, it's uh, the crash of R1 is a, is a more lethal crash. It, it is um, it is a much better story. Um, the Hindenburg story, if you ask me, is really only about what made it go boom. You know, what was the spark? Where did it come from? The R101 really, it's its a tale of the kind of the beginning of the end of the British Empire. It's the, all of this great stuff wound into this one, you know, this one man, Lord Thompson and his and his and his baby, his airship. And and so I'm telling a, a broader story of the early history of aviation, which includes all kinds of interesting things, but all gets wound around and into this larger story. So I think it it does what I what I like in a good history book, which it tells a good tale of a human tale, in this case of tragedy and doom 
ultimately, but also talks about a larger idea. And this is kind of the beginning of the end of the British Empire and the attempt on some level of the British Empire to save itself. Well, it is a great story. S.C. Gwynn, author of His Majesty's Airship. I encourage everyone to pick it up. I should stop saying the book is great. I know I've said it too much when the author can't even thank me for saying that the book is great, but it's really true. It's such an enjoyable, it's such an enjoyable read. And I am excited as everybody can tell. I hope everyone will go on this journey with you. Meet these aviators, these engineers, these impossible dreamers who reach for the skies quite literally saw their sweet dreams and flying machines in pieces on the ground. And since we're already talking about rock and roll music, why not James Taylor? I wish you the best of luck with this book. I hope you continue to fly high. I can't wait to climb on board and strap in for your next book. I'm sure it'll be another great one. Good luck. Thank you. It's it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Again, the book is His Majesty's Airship, The Life and Tragic Death of the world's largest flying machine. As always, you can find the Amazon link to purchase your copy at thehistoryauthor.com page for this episode. By buying the book through us, you help keep the flux capacitor on our time machine humming like usual. I have to thank S.C. Gwynn for coming back again. I always enjoy his book so much. Today, the appreciation is for sharing this amazing and complex story of trying to reach for the skies and crashing back to Earth. R101 was not the future of aviation, but the story is something we can enjoy even here in the year 2023. Visit our guest at scgwin.com or find him at scgwin on Twitter. And remember, you can find our two previous interviews in the archives. Those are about his books, Hymns of the Republic, the story of the final years of the American Civil War, and The Perfect Pass, American Genius, and the Reinvention of football. If you enjoyed watching this conversation, please do subscribe at our YouTube channel for future journeys in the Wayback Machine and visit historyauthor.com to find my social media accounts, as well as over 250 interviews with authors like S.C. Gwynn that you're sure to enjoy. That's it for this installment of the History Author Show. I hope you'll join us for our next all new interview right here on iHeartRadio or wherever you enjoyed this journey into yesterday. Until that next trip into the past together, on behalf of SC Gwynn and the crew and passengers of the dirigible R101, thanks so much for joining us today and have a great week. We still call it Broadway, but what's in a name? Take it from Georgie, it isn't the same. On the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore.